Hello, welcome to Minding Your Mind. I'm James O'Loughlin. In this podcast, we examine our mind, your mind, how it works, and mental illness. With me is Professor Ian Hickey, co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Today, it's all about bipolar disorder. What is it? How does it manifest itself? Why does it happen? What do you do about it? Ian, g'day. What is bipolar disorder? Well, the bi bit, it's like two. Yep. The poles, like polar opposites. Up and down. Up and down. So historically, manic depressive illness, the high bit, which is really a high energy bit. Yes. High activity bit, not just sort of high mood. That's one bit. And quite unnaturally so, mm. can't sleep, can't concentrate, can't do anything normally, just full of energy. Yeah. Speak really quickly. For how long? Like, really long time. Yeah. So over like, days. You mean like for days? Four days. Yeah. And historically, sadly, if it went on for days and days and days and you didn't sleep, you died. Oh, wow. Right? So untreated mania resulted in death. From sleeplessness. From the sleeplessness, but also the complete exhaustion mm. physiologically. We have this thing called a 24-hour cycle. Best if it's 16 hours awake, preferably during daylight, and eight hours of sleep, preferably during darkness, and your body and your brain, more importantly, resets and you cope. If you're interested in that, check out one of our earlier episodes. Body clocks. Second is the depressed bit. Now I'll attempt to speak slowly, and it's loss of energy, and it's slowing down, and it's low mood. And what is really intriguing about bipolar disorder is how the same person switches between the two, how they can be abnormally, abnormally, I say this, not normally, abnormally, very low, slowed down, no energy, no pleasure. Think of it as hibernating, having stopped, oversleeping, gaining weight, and then suddenly change of season, like in Easter or spring in, in Australia or in certain things like travel in certain circumstances like having a baby, they suddenly switch into the other bit of being awake all the time and agitated and active with ideas that they can fix everything and everything will be fine and doing all sorts of things they wouldn't normally do, spending lots of money, having sex with lots of people, doing all sorts of things recklessly and without much consideration of their consequences and between the two. So in the extreme forms. And, and do they typically have a period in the middle of relative normalcy? So what you're aiming for is the normalness for the rest of us. Okay, yeah. The rest of us have ups and downs, Yeah, be fair to say. But to less degree. And less frequent. Yeah. So there's normative, normal up and downs of everyday life, often situational, often the situations we're in and across the course of a day, actually, be more energetic in the mornings and tired out in the evenings. You know, there's normal kind of periods of up and down, normal degree of actually, some degree of seasonality in us all. We all do a bit less in winter. Mm. We all do a bit more in summer, we're more active, et cetera. That's different to this, which is extreme. In a now, but, if but people- between the high and the low, would they have a week of- you know, relative normalcy. Or? So the tr now that ideally and often yes, but often one follows the other. So mm. if you follow people who have manic periods, they typically are then followed by depressive episodes. And in fact, most people with bipolar disorder or manic depressive illness spend more time of their lives depressed, which is terrible and often quite suicidal and no pleasure in life. They're the longer periods in their life, and the periods of being high or manic, which everyone else notices, everyone else takes, must stop that, are quite short. Now, some people have what's called a rapid cycling illness where they go up and down between the two quite frequently, sometimes over days or weeks, as distinct from having long depressive episodes, often weeks and months, and mm. then manic episodes, which are often quite short, days and weeks. 
Is this genetic, circumstantial, a bit of both? Can a high or a low be triggered by an event or is it some sort of cycle within us? So the underlying vulnerability, the underlying liability to get the thing has strong genetic tendencies, runs in families quite strongly. What actually triggers a particular event, I mean, first of all, you don't see this really in childhood. You see its onset, usually first with depressive episodes in adolescence. So what makes bipolar disorder actually quite hard to diagnose and why it's often said to be delayed in the diagnosis is the first bits were depression. And you kind of can't say you've got bipolar disorder until you've had one of these manic or less than manic, so-called hypermanic, sort of little ones, first. And they often appear, while they do appear in the adolescent period, can be difficult to tell in teenagers. You know, a few days of being top of the world, doing things very energetically, can be hard to differentiate from normal activation amongst teenagers to these longer, more pathological kind of periods typically occurring in late adolescence or early adulthood, or in particular situations like after the birth of a child in women. And then it becomes clear, oh, this particular mood disorder ain't just got its downs, it's got these very old normal ups. So the the principal liability is genetic, but what triggers a particular episode in development might be something like childbirth, might be something uh, else like and particularly change of seasons, often being one of the common factors, or other things like drug use or things like travel internationally, things we used to do pre-COVID, fly around the world, other sets of circumstances, other stressful events, other particular events that happen in your life that particularly disrupt your sleep-wake cycle are things that are likely to trigger an event. Mm. It's unusual, isn't it? Because the other uh, mental illnesses we've talked about, anxiety is a a relatively constant state. Depression is a constant state. This is two different states. Well, anxiety, yes. I mean, the, the, the bipolarity here, the opposite ends mm. kind of notion is what makes it so intriguing. You can be, have something that so slows you down, robs you of energy, makes you go slow, and yet something about it makes you do the opposite, <laughs> go really yeah. high. So that very peculiar nature of switching between two extremes of human behaviour makes it such an intriguing kind of problem it and so it- different as you say so different from those things which are more uh departures from other temperamental characteristics i mean we all have a capacity to be anxious we all have a capacity to be miserable whereas anxiety and depression remembering more extreme versions of just one end i think for a layperson it makes it sound more chemical if you like there's there's chemical fluctuations in the brain and that that seems more overtly so than than when analyzing depression Well, that is so interesting you say that, James, because in this situation, no, you don't get much argument, actually, amongst most people, that it's fairly neurobiological, if you like. There's something wrong with the brain switch. Now, whether it's chemical or how it's done or what it is that's causing it, most people can go, hang on a second, to go from one state to another isn't simply a psychological response (laughs) to difficult circumstances. I think it's kind of interesting about the other ones that you assume the other ones are just psychological responses to difficult situations. Yeah, well, of they course, because they're their chemical biology. too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they have their own biology, yes. Yeah. And I think that's – but that's harder to see. In this one, most people having seen someone, known someone, seen a relative in this situation go, you know what, there's something about that person's uh, cycle of mood and activity that's gone off. Mm. You know, that is not under their voluntary control and when it's off – it's off in a big way. And therefore, they can't just talk themselves out of it either. Yeah. It's going to require some kind of intervention to get it back under control. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, do some people find, who suffer from bipolar, find some quite positive aspects in the up fra- phase? You know, yes. they kind of, this is great. There was that feeling. It's only afterwards that they realise maybe it wasn't so great. Oh, that's uh, – well, two things to say here. The 
most people with bipolar disorder have depression. The depression is terrible, like yeah. really bad. So any sense of coming out of that, is great. of being more active and being improved, to come back to normalcy, as you said, or to be slightly elevated, slightly hypermanic, to have more energy and do things after months and months and months of not being able to do anything. <laughs> oh, thank God. You know, like at least it ends in that particular way. But actually, to think about the high as actually very pleasurable or enjoyable, that's not frequently the case. It's actually quite unpleasant. For most people who are high, they're very active, they're very directed, they want to do things, they can't figure out why the rest of the world is so slow mm. and difficult and doesn't simply want to go with them on their world-solving world peace, solving world poverty, reconstructing the world, fixing climate change by tomorrow. Why yeah. isn't everyone else on board? And yeah. everyone else is kind of going, no, 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 we don't think you're thinking straight, you should slow down. So there's often a degree of irritability, there's a degree of agitation, often it be quite unpleasant right. to be in that state. It's not the normal elevated mood, mm. not, not what the rest of us would call happiness <laughs> or contentment. It's actually a driven activity which, you know, might have a really great purpose. I suddenly know how to solve something. Yeah. It's very hard for people to translate that. So people often do associate it with creativity, with being artistic, with being sensitive, but it doesn't translate to being actually necessarily productive. It can be quite chaotic. <laughs> so. Right. Uh, most people say they're very with bipolar disorder. They're very glad for the depressive episodes to end, but boy, the, if, if becoming really manic can land them in stacks of trouble. If you suddenly spend a lot of money, you suddenly have sex with a lot of people you shouldn't have had sex with. If you suddenly ruin relationships, if you suddenly crash your business, if you suddenly actually have all sorts of other impacts on your life, when that ends, yikes! Yikes! That probably makes the following you made the whole episode even worse. You just made your whole life a lot worse. Yeah. Okay. So if we move on to treatment of bipolar disorder, I would. We've talked in the past about uh, about medication and therapy as being the two cornerstones, if you like, of the treatment of many mental illnesses. I would imagine therapy might be difficult for bipolar, and we're looking more at medication. Or no? Well, both. No, no. The, actually, if you think about this as a dysregulation, as we do, of your 24-hour clock, it should have periods of being awake and asleep, and it should be like that and be quite regular day to day, and this is all over the place. You're either one end or the other. Mm. Then the behavioural bit, and of that, there are two bits that really matter, light exposure. Actually, light sets the body clock every day, and there's really? a lot of discussion, a lot of discussion in the area about whether people with bipolar disorder have an abnormal sensitivity to light and instability from day to day, and physical activity. So there are things around light exposure and physical activity leading regular cycles. So the behavioural bit matters, but this switch problem of switching mm. between the two, then there has been an emphasis, okay, before we had medical therapies, we did not have a way of keeping that switch from going from one to the other. Australia's great contribution to world pharmacotherapy and you know, medications in psychiatry was a by, discovery by Dr. John Cade in Melbourne in 1948 of the therapeutic effects of lithium that actually stabilises the clock. So it actually takes away this uh, great variation from episode to episode or day to day in that clock function. Right. So, so the magic magic bullet, it fixes everything and... If no. you are one, <laughs> no. If only it was so. <laughs> so for those who, this is the catch twenty two here. For those who are lithium responsive, yes, it's a marvelous thing in terms of preventing recurrence of future episodes. Side effects? Oh yeah, oh yeah. 
Was there ever a medicine that was invented that didn't have side effects? So lithium has to be closely monitored. In large doses, it's quite toxic to the brain and to the kidneys and to other glands, including the thyroid gland. So it needs to be closely monitored to keep it in the right so-called therapeutic level, and it can have other problems associated with it. And so even when it's in the normal levels, there are other problems in terms of skin rashes and acne, and there are problems in terms of thirst, and there are other kind of issues upsetting your tummies. So there are other things that need to be monitored. But if you are a lithium-responsive person. And what percentage of people with bipolar disorder are? That's a really good question because it depends on the number of people who get exposed to the treatment. So what has happened in recent years is the diagnosis has become broader. More people get diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Okay. Right? Because the boundaries, it used to be that you had to be very, very severely unwell, get hospitalised before you ever got the diagnosis. Mm. Now as more people get the diagnosis outside of hospital settings... Then a whole lot of other treatments, other mood-stabilising agents, particularly those, interestingly, that were often anti-convulsants, anti-epilepsy agents, have become quite commonly used in those areas, as well as other more sedative agents, the so-called antipsychotics and others. And variously, of course, because of this problem with depression, there's the use of antidepressants. Now, in this area, very controversial because people who've got bipolar disorder who take antidepressants are at risk of switching from depression to mania. And that might appear to be precipitated by exposure to antidepressants. So they need to take combinations of treatments. Yes. So the classical thing is to say a mood-stabilising agent, lithium being our number one choice, but other anticonvulsants, anti-epilepsy drugs being our number two choices in the area, and the so-called antipsychotic drugs being number three, they're all ways to try and prevent mania or stabilise mood. And between the three of them, will they be effective for most people? The majority, yes. So the majority of people who have discrete episodes get, certainly for the mania bit, here's the hard bit. Mm. When you say they're effective, and why I was sort of avoiding answering your question directly previously, if you said prevention of mania, treatment of mania, we're very good at that. Treating mania and preventing mania with lithium. What we're not so good at... The the depression side. side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you come to the depressed bit, treating bipolar depression remains one of the biggest stumbling blocks in clinical psychiatry. It is still the hardest thing to actually treat. So standard antidepressants, not so great, risks of side effects and switching, but less response to treatment. So from a straight medical point of view, harder to treat and harder to prevent. Mm. Having said that, if we get the mood-stabilising bit right... Others right, and this is where come back to your earlier point that I was saying. Actually, behaviour does matter. Trying to get what so-called social rhythms—how you eat, sleep, work every day in regular patterns, light exposure—important kind of issues to pursue, and a range of other new treatments being pursued in these areas as well. So it is one of the most treatable, at least if you say prevention of mania. Much much better at that. But I would imagine if someone is in a manic episode, it might make them less likely to take their me- medication. At that point. Yeah. At the point that people so are hopefully really hopefully you prevent it. Right. So having ever gone down that path, and this is the really tricky bit now about early intervention, right, is, okay, if you've had a really bad episode, then treating that episode and then convincing someone that they really should try and prevent that again, if we can, with the minimum amount of side effects, becomes more convincing, both to prevent the mania and prevent the depression that follows. Mm. If you've never had the full-blown thing and you're trying to intervene earlier for less severe, for so-called hypermanic episodes, or I'm talking about broadening the diagnosis here, then it's more controversial. At what point would you be convinced (laughs) if you haven't yet had the thing? It's trying to convince convince blokes who haven't had heart attacks that they should do a whole lot of things Mm. to prevent heart attacks before they've had one. After they've had one, if they've survived, 
They're a lot easier to convince, mm. you know. So there's a bit of denial there. Yeah, but also we can't be sure. If you think of all the risk factors we do prior to heart attacks or prior to cancer, we don't know exactly who's going to get the thing. We're making our best guess. So you often have to treat more people to prevent one of those people becoming unwell. So these are the controversial areas of at what point do you try and initiate those treatments. And there are other factors, like if you have a strong family history of the thing, you're more mm. likely to try and say, well, you know, probably matters a lot more to you since these things do run strongly in families. Or there are other consequences of if you would become so unwell. So there are a lot of discussions to take place. But as part of the general movement towards earlier intervention in psychiatry, this is a discussion we're now having with teenagers and young adults. Whereas when I was young, which was a really long time ago, you know, we generally were treating people a lot older <laughs> whose lives had already been ruined yeah. by repeated episodes of these kinds of illnesses. And if you're, if you're interested in what early intervention is all about, one of our earlier episodes delves deeply into it. How common is bipolar disorder? So it used to be said 1% to 2% of the population. Now, if you use these broader kind of classifications, people are sort of going, oh, well, 2 to 4%, you know, like yeah. now that might not seem like a lot, but that's twice as many people, yeah, <laughs> you know. Seems like it's a actually, fair bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's actually pretty common in the population if you think it's at that kind of order. Now, it gets all very controversial at that broader, less specific end because there's probably a lot of reasons why people can have unstable moods, ups and downs, mm. that are personality-related, related to depressive illnesses of different types, related to other problems that are not really bipolar disorder. But as you might be aware, James, in psychiatry and mental health, we don't have any really good diagnostic tests. There's no brain scan or blood tests I can send yeah, you off right. and go, no, no, you've got it. What we're trying to work towards is what are called kind of clinical algorithms, combinations of things. And so in the future, certain kinds of genetic tests, certain kinds of tests of your sleep-wake cycle, certain sorts of other factors, if we add them all up, the probability that you've got the thing gets higher. So yeah. we're trying to find out ways of having better predictive value. What do we see clinically? Plus, what are the things you may not be able to see about yourself, about your metabolism, about your brain, about your genetics? that increase the probability that we're right. Is it like, you know, with COVID, you've either got it or you haven't, right? You test negative or you test positive. You don't ha kind of have it. With well, that's very interesting you say that. When oh, you, when am you I test wrong? Yes, of course you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> when you say you've got COVID, right, yeah. what you can test is whether the virus is up your nose, whether you're actually sick oh, or okay. not. I mean, a whole lot of people have COVID up their nose. They're not yeah. sick. They're asymptomatic. Yeah, but they have They COVID. didn't get sick. Yes. Now, a whole lot of viruses, so they've had exposure to the virus, right? Now, you're probably walking around with the glandular fever virus and the shingles virus, the herpes viruses in your you got a whole lot of stuff really? in you all the time. Now, have you got it or not? Well, you haven't got the illness. Um, right. Right? In our world, just to take the analogy, we will have people who've got very strongly got the genetics for it mm. but haven't had the illness. <laughs> And then what's really going to challenge us is we're going to find people where we think we've got the genetics or other markers. They've got the illness, but they yeah, okay. so, so we're in that, uh, unlike viral illnesses, unlike other areas. This is actually, it's interesting you say that because if you think about things like cancer, would you say you've got it or you haven't got it? I'd say I haven't got it. Yeah, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because well, there's a whole I've lot of things here. Well, we run around your skin and we run around, the, there are a whole lot of precancerous lesions people have all the time. Oh, okay. In fact, people yep. probably have cancer cells that then get wiped out. Right. by their immune system or other things. So you never symptomatically get it. You got heart disease? Don't got coronary artery so. disease? Jeez. Yeah, well, if you had a look at your coronary arteries, right? Maybe I do have a little bit. Man of your age, whatever. Yeah. 
guess what we'd find? A little bit of heart disease. Yeah. So, but you're not you're not ill from it. I get you. And it's not producing a clinical syndrome. So now, what I was getting to, mm, and I guess I know the answer now, you can have a little bit of bipolar disorder. You can no. So what we would say is you've got the vulnerability, or you got you may have the process, you may have the liability, you may have that which puts you at risk of the syndrome, but right. you haven't yet had the syndrome. But the syndrome isn't a line, is it? It's no. not like uh, it's not like you either have it and life's really bad, or you don't have it. Some people have. 10 out of 100, some people have 17 out of 100, some people on the severity scale have 84 out of 100. Is that more like it? So one of the biggest debates in the whole of clinical psychiatry, I just exactly the problems, yeah. you're really good at picking these ones up, okay, <laughs> is the dimensional approach right, yeah. versus the categorical approach. Now, why it gets really tricky, if my answer seems a little bit, you know, opaque again. So far. <laughs> so far. It might get better. Yeah. <laughs> is that a lot of the stuff at the brain level is probably shared across many of the psychiatric disorders. So some aspects of abnormal brain development, some abnormal effects of the way nerve cells connect with each other, some of the chemistry is shared across depression and bipolar disorder and some of the others. So it's a common factor. Okay. But why you get this particular syndrome and not that particular syndrome relates to some other set of factors, environmental factors or things we don't understand very well. So... Some of the vulnerable, we would say more importantly, vulnerability is probably there in quite a lot of people who never develop the syndrome because they don't have the additional factors that tip you over into it. Yeah, okay. In a particular way. But also, then the thing we're observing isn't that easy to kind of see. But, so, but this is not unusual. I've got to say, for heart disease, lots of people get chest pain, yes. angina, due to narrowing of the coronary arteries, but never have a heart attack. So, like most. Most diseases or most physical or mental conditions, there are degrees. Yeah. There's degrees of COVID. There's degrees of diabetes. There's, a degree, there's degrees of diabetes. Do you think of diabetes, yes, no, as an adult? Pretty no. No, because you look at people's fasting okay. blood glucose. So what we do is we tend to draw a line at that point beyond which you're really going to suffer a lot of consequences. Mm. Yeah. So when in the past, in most diseases, when it's really bad, everyone's in agreement. <laughs> And as you move to less and less severe forms or earlier earlier clinical stages of those illnesses, there's more argument about have you crossed the line or not. I have heard people say, I miss the highs. Yes, I take my, my, my uh, medication to control my bipolar disorder, but the highs I miss. So many people with bipolar disorder who have a lot of depression say, boy, I'd rather be a little bit manic, hypermanic than depressed. Because, you know, I got energy, I got libido, yeah. I'm engaged with the world, I'm doing stuff in that particular way. And, and therefore, if the treatment takes that away. Now, my earlier comment about the problem with treatment is that's the bit we're really good at taking away. Yeah. <laughs> and leave people with the depression. And many of my own patients would say, doctor, that's really not a great option. <laughs> you took away that bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You took away the worst bit, the manic bit where it ruined everything. But couldn't I just keep a little bit of the other bit? Where I'm energetic, I'm engaged, yeah. I'm enjoying, you know, even if it's causing a bit of chaos for everyone around me. Full of I'm, beans. I'm full of beans. Mm. Interestingly, kind of interesting uh, set of studies I'm tied up with is people can be energetic without really being hypermanic, right? They, that is, it's all of us enjoy states of being more energetic and more productive yes. <laughs> in a particular way than being. I'm going to say, well, yeah, this is with normal, just, you know, couch potatoes. You know, we like that kind of stuff. And there are differences in that. So it's not surprising that if treatments at the moment 
really take away the more energetic bits. But at, to date, we haven't done a great job of treating the depressive bits uh, that a lot of patients make the choice, a lot of people with these experiences make the choice to not necessarily want to go where the doctor might want to go or their family or others might want to go. Yes, yes, okay. Um, so early, I mean, I guess it's one of the ones that is probably easier to pick up if you're a sufferer from it. You know, we've talked before about how it's very easy if you're suffering from depression or anxiety, that to actually feel like the normal state of being, not to realise you're unwell. But with the fluctuation, one would imagine people suffering from bipolar can pick it up a bit more obviously. So since it starts as a teenager, right, and sleep-wake cycles are changing a lot in teenagers anyway. When you say... It starts as a teenager. That's almost without exception. That's usually? Yes. Yeah. Okay. The one big exception is amongst women in their 20s and 30s who've never really had an episode before who have a child. And in the postnatal period, they have the first big really? boom, boom oh. of an episode. Okay. Yes. So they're the two times to yeah, watch Yeah, they're out. the two. So the rest of boys and girls and, and young men and young women, it's in that late teenage and early adult period, they're often going to have their first kind of episode. So the difficulty there, of course, is... The adult world turns around and goes, oh, well, teenagers are all over the place. You know, the fact that he, she is moody, the fact that he and she's got energy and lies in bed all the time, but other times runs around and whatever else, that's not you know, right. that's not what... Mm. And the sleep-wake cycle of teenagers is changing towards this later going to bed, later getting up, and then periods of, you know, having energy and staying awake when the rest of us would fall asleep. You know, so this is where public education matters, right? Mm. To what degree is a teenager or a young adult actually behaving in a way that is very similar to their peers and normal development versus actually going in a different direction with the severity of the depression, with the switch between the two, with the levels of highs. And, of course, the extent to which people then do their own thing, drug and alcohol use, sexual behaviour, other sets of stuff. People go, oh, well, isn't that what teenagers normally do? (laughs) Isn't that what, you know? So we have missed the boat in the past with a lot of people until they crash. (laughs) And then we go, oh, well... Well, that previous five years, that previous 10 years, you know, well, that clearly was the intervening period. So a lot of research was done in the late 1990s and early 2000s about how long it took to diagnose people, meaning we really didn't wait until they really had crashed the car several times Mm. before we thought, oh, yeah. But if you go the other way around, it's not so easy. But I think this is where public awareness does matter. Not just about that. And probably the problem in bipolar disorder is describing it as a mood disorder. So everyone goes, are you moody? Are your moods up and down? Well, how would we know whether that was an illness or not? Because, you know, every teenager's mood is up and down. Don't think of it as a mood disorder. Think of it as an energy disorder, a sleep-wake cycle disorder, rather than a mood disorder. People who are very physically active, overdoing it, all sorts of things, and then people who are stuck on the couch, not moving. (laughs) You know, people who are not sleeping at all. If that's the same person switching between those two things, you've got to stop and scratch your head. And, And, you know, without an obvious social context for that, if particularly it's happening around seasonality, changes in seasons, happening in particular kind of ways, it's happening in these periods, that really don't have any clear explanation. You know, it's out of sync with the way that a young person is living their life. Then that's where you go. And, and, you know, it's severe. I mean, when these are not pleasant mood states to be in. Yeah. And the good news is that when it's diagnosed, there is... With medication, a, a relatively successful and relatively simple cure that doesn't involve, you know, lying on the couch talking to a therapist for years. 
Yes, we'd all love to lie on a couch and talk to a therapist for a year, but in this case, it will not be the most effective treatment. Yeah. No, so the, and that plus the lifestyle adjustments and then and then preventing other problems like bipolar people are particularly likely to engage in suicidal behaviour. They're particularly likely to crash relationships, particularly likely to abuse drugs and alcohol and run into all sorts of other problems. So we're trying to prevent a whole lot of other problems, including a lot of other physical health problems then as they age. Mm. And in fact, just the other way around in research I'm associated with, a lot of young people who are suicidal with unstable moods, a proportion go on to develop bipolar disorder, right? So they come on first, really, in really bad situation. And we tend to go, oh, you know, they're teenagers, they're unstable moods, they don't really mean it. You know, we have got to be much more devoted to systematic evaluation of these things. Now, the more that we have devices that can actually measure your sleep-wake cycle, so things you can put around your wrist and measure whether you're awake or asleep and how many hours you're doing this, and look at the day-to-day stability of those things. It's the instability in those things that's really interesting. Mm. You know, your normal body clock is pretty regular in all of us. If it's all over the place, we're even more interested in why it's gone wrong. Any final thoughts? One of the most important disorders to pick up early, get a good evaluation and get good treatment because really – like uh, when I grew up, we used to wait for men to have heart attacks and then if they were still alive, we'd think about secondary prevention, not so good because it hurt the heart. It left them with heart failure. Mm. Disorders like bipolar disorder, which are associated with a whole lot of other body effects, including inflammation throughout the body, hurt the brain <laughs> as well. So repeated episodes do damage to the organ of interest, the brain, as well as the rest of the body. So this is one of those areas where earlier identification, good systematic treatment, can lead to much better outcomes. But we have been bad at the past in detecting it in its earlier forms and then sticking with people through critical periods, particularly during their early adult periods, to see where it goes. So this is one of those areas where potentially we can have a big impact by early intervention and much greater personalisation of care during that period. Thank you, Ian. Minding Your Mind is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help is, of course, available from Headspace, headspace.org.au, Beyond Blue, beyondblue.org.au, Head to Health at headtohealth.gov.au and Lifeline at lifeline.org.au or you can call 13 11 14.